0: You're listening to the Doxology and Theology podcast where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, they gave me the, the topic, personal spirituality, first things first. So I want to start with just some prayer and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your new mercies for us. Let's take a moment to confess your sins to the Lord. Thank him that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, to wash us clean. Thank you, Lord, that you sustained us through the night. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us. Thank you that you're with us. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So when I began to think about first things first for spiritual, um, for our personal spirituality, uh, there were a lot of topics and things that came to my mind. And there there are some that we're going to talk through in just a minute. Um, but one that I couldn't shake, one that I couldn't get away from, uh, is identity, our identity. And so, uh, who are you? And who are you created to be? Why are you here? And not why are you at doxology and theology, necessarily, but why are you on this earth? Why do you exist? Whose are you? Um, this was this was something, again, i couldn't I couldn't shake. Um, the fact that for some, putting identity first and not thinking of anything but uh, um, shame, hatred, anger, uh, these things that really aren't us, but that we involve ourselves in and allow the enemy to creep in, uh, they can own us. They can really, really tear tear us up and tear us to pieces. And so I wanted to begin with this, uh, Genesis 1, 27, It says this, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created him. John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I read uh, A.W. Tozer's... I'm going to come on the other side here, a little more personal. Um, A.W. Tozer's book, and he dwelt among us, teachings from the Gospel of John. He he talks about uh, John 3.16 in this way. He says, When I read those words, God so loved the world... It means in personal terms that I mean something to God. God has his eyes upon me and is emotionally concerned about me. If this simple message could rise above the confusion of the religious world, it would offer hope to those who embrace it. Right here, I see a strange paradox, a strange contradiction in human nature. You often see a man walking around as if he's the king of the world, His persona is full of offensive egotism, and he's strutting around like a pigeon with his chest bulging out. Yet, when you get to know the man deep inside, he is filled with a great sense of loneliness and lostness. The thought that plagues his heart and his soul is that nobody really cares about him. Echoing throughout the inner chambers of his heart are the words, I matter to nobody. Nobody cares about me. When Jesus said, "Come unto me, all you who are labor, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest," he was not inviting tired people to him. Although tired people are welcome to come, he was not uh, he was not inviting those who were economically oppressed, though they are also welcome. Nor was he inviting those who had been politically oppressed, as the Jews were under the Romans. Rather. He invited those who are inwardly tired and emotionally fatigued with the heavy pressure of the knowledge or at least the belief that in the vast universe they do not matter to anybody and nobody actually cares about them. There is no one emotionally concerned with them. There we have this strange paradox tearing at the human heart. On one side is an egotism that is offensive and rank and makes a man boast and lie and strut. On the other hand, deep within him is a whimpering, frightened, homesick, heartsick, broken boy who knows that there is nobody in the universe who is emotionally concerned about him. He does not matter to anybody. So I want to begin here because I would venture to guess that there are some in this room um, who don't have a healthy identity. Maybe some who grew up with uh, with tough parents or no parents at all. Maybe some who have had uh, a boss or uh, a mentor that has pressed them down, made them feel shame. Maybe the way you see the Lord as as father is more of a slave driver um, than a loving father. And so, personal spirituality. First things first. I think this is a good place to start. Our identity. And I want to start by saying this, you will never be condemned by God. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's not a three strikes and you're out scenario with the Lord. He always loves. He always sees. He always cares. The narrative we find ourselves in is one of grace and love, like a father to his children. I'm going to read just a little bit of Luke 15. It says this, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me a share of property that's coming to me. Now this was, this was highly offensive in that day to ask for the inheritance before the father has died or to get the inheritance before he's died. But father, give it to me. And so the father divided the property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. We know this story, but I think it's important to read again. And There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. His father, what? Ran to him, saw him, felt compassion for him, wrapped his arms around him, and threw him a huge party. Bring me the fattened calf. Put a robe around, uh, put a robe on his body, and put sandals on his feet, for my son was lost and is found. This is the love of the Father. This is the love that God has for you. This is how He sees you, though you may not see yourself this way. I often come to the Lord and go, I'm not, I am not at all worthy to be called your son. I have sinned so deeply against you. And I never really say this, but how do I, how do I earn back your love, God? And it's way more simple. It was actually really complex and awful having to sacrifice his son on our behalf. But once that happened, it's way more simple than we want to make it out to be. We've been covered by the blood of Jesus, and so our identity is, I am a child of God. That's our identity. So first things first, I think it's important that we, that we uh, understand that. I had uh, a hard conversation with my wife this morning. She called crying, and my son, my second born, is, uh, is really strong-willed, if we want to say it that way. Um, he's difficult and he has always been difficult. He is everyone's favorite. He has the brightest personality. If he came into this room and he started talking a bit, you'd be laughing and he's just so much fun and he's so difficult. He's just He just wants to do it by himself. He wants to do it on his own. It's going to be his way or the highway. My wife had asked him to, uh, to do something um, and he refused. Um, and I had to talk with him and just do that thing that you do when you're out of town. You're like, I, I am going to spank you when I get home. <laughs> if you don't tell your mother I love you and I'm sorry. And, you know, and uh, um, so I wasn't that intense, but it was I was upset. And uh, and I said, um, I said, did he apologize about an hour later? And uh, it got cut off on my iPad. So I'm actually going to read it from my phone. But. Um, so I said, Did, did he apologize? And uh, my wife said, He did, but it wasn't from his heart. Then on the way to school, I kept saying how he needs to stop internalizing everything and how it doesn't mean much when he just says sorry. We were both crying. Then we were almost uh, to the front of the school, and he, for the first time, said a heartfelt, I'm sorry. He's 10. It was sweet. I don't know if I've ever heard that from him before. Um, and just like I am now, I was crying when I read that text because I thought of the Father's love for us. Because I was mad at Jude, my son. I was really mad at him this morning. I was mad at him for making my wife upset, for making her cry. I was mad that he just wants to hold on to his pride. He doesn't want to, like, so I was mad at him. And then when I read that, everything melted away. I was rejoicing in the fact that my son repented and that he truly said I'm sorry to my wife. And that's how the Lord feels, times a thousand, where he's not mad at us, he's, he sees perfection when he sees you, he sees Jesus' blood when he sees you. So our identity is found in Jesus, um, in being a child of God. Uh, I want to read uh, just a bit of Matthew. Matthew 18 says, This this. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it. Right? I think a lot of times I, I don't stop there. He doesn't go, Where were you? There are 99 back there that we have been waiting for you. We have climbed this mountain. I had to leave them. I am so frustrated with you. No, no. He rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these should perish. You will never be forgotten, you will never be left behind. But what else does God say that you are? Let's continue in this for just a bit. What else does God say? I want you, if you can, just to put down your phones, your pens, uh, and cup your hands in front of you and close your eyes. We're just going to read the Bible together. Hear this and believe it today. You are a child of God, John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You are loved. Matthew 10 Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. You are loved. You are valuable. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? And don't think of this as in you're trying to escape from the Lord, but rather there is nowhere um, that, that he does not care for you. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the darkness, you're even there in the darkness. If I take the wings of the morning, the farthest east where the sun rises and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And hear this, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So even before your mother knew she was pregnant, the Lord was already showing his care for you. And it says, I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, or wonderfully set apart. Wonderful are your works, and my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, Yet as when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. We wake up worshiping the one who never slept. I have a few more with your eyes closed. Hear this. You are a friend of Jesus, John 15. No longer do I call you servants, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. You are no longer a slave to sin, Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Hear that and believe it today. You are free, Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are chosen, holy, blameless before God. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Lastly, you may wonder, given all your past and remaining sin, who am I that the highest king would welcome me right now? You recite your unworthiness to yourself and you sit in the pigsty of an old sin and not only wonder how you got there, but how your king can receive you. The answer is not found in your inherent worthwhileness, nor in God's neediness for you. You are celebrated, crowned, loved, because your true elder brother, the one who does not moan when you're welcomed home into the city after you, paid off your debts with his own life. He suffered for our sin and purchased our acceptance. The ring you wear is his. The best robe that now covers you is his. His sandals, which John the Baptist was unworthy to untie, now rests upon your feet today. God isn't so cheaply sentimental as to forget all your crimes, but he is so loving as to sacrifice himself for all of them. If you've been reborn, If you are repenting of your sin and believing the gospel, you are a child of God. And this status comes with authority. John 1 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the authority to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so you may not feel particularly childlike today. You may not be enjoying his word in the morning or... um, walking with him closely in this season. But do not let the liar convince you that you are not a child of the king. You are chosen, not forsaken. You are free, not a slave. He is for you, not against you. You are his child, not an orphan. That is who you are, because that is who he says you are, and that is who he died for you to become. So open your eyes. First things first, you are a child of God. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right. Number two, the other ones won't be this long. Number two, what, what are some things we need to keep first? Um, after uh, 25 years in, in ministry, um, I think number two should be growing in self-awareness. So once we can understand our identity Um, we know who we are in Christ, we can start to be teachable and we can start to be vulnerable with others. Uh, We can grow in our self-awareness. Romans 12 says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so for some of us, probably most of us over time, worldly confidence will start to grow, but watch for dependence on the Lord to wane when that happens. Over time, we can slowly forget what uh, prayer and fasting, trust, and humility look like when all is well and we feel as though all is good. And so to be self-aware, we need to know what rules our hearts. And here are some things that can rule our hearts. Ego or selfish ambition. Philippians 2 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Second, wounds. Maybe you had a father, mother that wounded you. Maybe a brother, sister, a friend, another family member. And there are some deep wounds that have not been repaired. Psalm 147 says this, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. cry out to him today. If you're wounded, if you're walking in wounds, cry out and he will bind up your wounds. And conversely, Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So we can see here that not all anger is sin, right? There is a, there is a righteous anger, but he's warning us to not go to sleep, not get through the night uh, with anger. And so maybe there's some wounds that you're experiencing, and need to give that to the Lord, and confess those things, and move on. So we have ego, selfish ambition, we have wounds, uh, calling. Maybe maybe your calling has gotten in the way. Maybe it's ruling your heart. First Corinthians 1 says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Have you let even your calling get in the way of your self awareness. Maybe money, um, maybe money has uh, has creeped in, and uh, and the love of it has taken over. Um, so to be self aware, uh, we need um, we need to know what rules our hearts. To be self aware, we need to know uh, how we're wired. Okay, and so um, like you've got to know yourself here. Sleep, how much sleep do you need? I know I've heard uh, that Dr. Moller needs like three hours of sleep, which is crazy. It's unbelievable. Um, but, uh, but some people need, like my wife needs eight hours or it's gonna be a rough day, you know? Um, what do you need? How much sleep do you need? Uh, what, what about like your expectations of yourself? There are people around you that may be able to read five books a week and you're trying to live up to that same level of expectation. Find out what that is for you. Maybe you are able, that's awesome. Uh, but maybe it's like one book a month, right? Uh, maybe you're a slower reader like me. Um, know who you are in that, that way. Um, are you an organizational leader or an artist with little to no organizational skills? Um, I am a artist who is late to things, <laughs> right? Uh, like today, um, know yourself and put people around you that's gonna help, help you in, uh, in that area. Uh, what's your bandwidth? What can you handle? Okay? And so to, to be uh, truly self-aware, uh, we also need to know our strengths and weaknesses. And this enables you to celebrate the strengths and gifts of others and not feel threatened by them. Right? So know your own strengths and weaknesses and be okay with it. Be okay with your weaknesses. Be okay with your strengths. We want to joyfully applaud the success of another, especially when our gifts are similar. We want to joyfully applaud the success of another, especially when our gifts are similar. Does that make sense? It's a noble thing to do this. And I have found at 40 years old, this is a really difficult thing to do. To celebrate with someone else um, who is doing the very thing that I'm doing. Uh, It's shameful to admit it um, at times, but, uh, but it is important to know it and know that it resides in my heart sometimes. To be truly self-aware means that we're paying attention to our thoughts and actions. It's the last part of this. The Bible is clear that the heart is deceptive and we all walk in a certain level of denial about how we think and act. So confess your sins to others. Invite men and women into your life who can speak into your life. All right, so number three, manage your physical vitality. Let's keep first things first. I didn't wanna put the physical part uh, at first, obviously, but this is, a, this is an important piece. So have you considered your physical health? Are you in physical shape for what God has called you to do? Not in the modern sense, but are you taking care of yourself, stewarding your physical body for the calling that God's given you? Jonathan Edwards, uh, his Resolution 4 says this, By a sparingness in diet and eating as much as may be what is light and easy of digestion, I shall doubtless be able to think more clearly and shall gain time. Number one, by lengthening out my life, Number two, shall need less time for digestion after meals. (laughs) Number three, shall be able to study more closely without injury to my health. And number four, shall need less time for sleep. And five, shall more seldom be troubled with the headache. So he considered um, everything from how he ate to how physical activity would affect him. He measured it not by how he looked, but by how he felt and whether or not it gave him the energy, vibrancy, and vitality he needed to do the Lord's work. By doing so, Edwards tapped into the reality that physical health is, quote, of some value, as First Timothy says. It says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So we want to make sure the majority of our time here, personal spirituality, we're talking about uh, godliness and not necessarily physicalness, but it is of some value. But that leads us to number four, pursue spiritual depth. So part of this is intellectual. Spiritual depth, part of it, it's uh, experiential. God cares how we see him and understand him. And everybody is a theologian, okay? Everyone's a theologian, but some of us are accidental Pharisees, and some of us are accidental heretics, okay? Accidental Pharisees, they understand grace conceptually, all right? They know the law, but can't seem to apply it. Truth can be like a club that they beat others over the head with, forgetting that it's actually... A scalpel, right? Hebrews 4 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. Clubs don't get into that level uh, of our bodies, our hearts, our soul. A scalpel does, a sword, a sharp sword. Larry Osborne, a pastor in California, says that becoming a modern-day accidental Pharisee is a lot like eating at Denny's. No one wants to go there. We just end up there. (laughs) So here are a few things to consider if you find yourself an accidental Pharisee. Don't look down on others. Are you raising your kids well? Are you spending your money well? Are you reading your Bible daily? Are you setting your priorities well? Great. Don't look down on others who aren't. Don't tear them down. Rather, build them up. God hates haughty, proud, indifferent eyes, Proverbs 6 says. So if you look down on others, that disgusted and disdainful look of arrogance and judgmental slander against another, this isn't chit-chat that we're doing when we're doing this. It's major sin that God hates. We need to crush the spirit of exclusivity When thinning the herd becomes more important than expanding the kingdom or raising the bar becomes more important than helping people climb over it, something has gone wrong. Don't create a circle of fellowship that's tighter than Jesus' circle of acceptance. Don't create a circle of fellowship that's tighter than Jesus' circle of acceptance. So don't look down on others. Crush the spirit of exclusivity. Crush the spirit of legalism. Put away the list of extra biblical rules and expectations. Be careful when you rush to judgment by seeing what's in their driveway or how big their house is. Finally, be humble and work hard. You need God's help in order to be effective worship leader, pastor, minister. Don't take for granted that you can knock it out of the park based on natural ability. Do the humble work of preparing and praying for the Spirit's power. Okay, now... That is the accidental Pharisee. The accidental heretic, this person's heart, is usually good. They usually love the Lord, but they just say really dumb things about God that aren't true, right? Like, he thought of me above all. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, So my heart was good, sounded right, but when the weight of the word rested on those words, it didn't hold up when I used to sing that song. <laughs> um, okay, let's move on. Number, number five, build emotional bandwidth. This is, this is just simple. There, you, you, are, you are walking with leaders. You are walking with worship leaders and band members and production people and all the people that you work with and all their different sets of strengths and weaknesses, and they can be difficult, right? Leadership is difficult, and you need the emotional bandwidth to be able to lead. So find that in your life, whatever that looks like. Number six, sharpen the axe. Knowledge has to be improved, challenged, and increased constantly or it vanishes, Peter Drucker says. But Ecclesiastes 10 says this, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. But wisdom has the advantage of giving success. So sharpen your axe before you go cut the trees. Read, pray, train, study. Sharpen the axe. And finally, labor well. Labor in the word of God. To this end we toil and strive. Or for to our people attaining godliness, we labor. To this end we toil and strive. And we should labor. We should make great effort in prayer, preparation, study, devotion to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation, to teaching, 1 Timothy says. And what a wonderful and weighty opportunity that we've been given, right? As worship ministers, as administrators, as those in production, all of all of the responsibilities that we've been given, it is wonderful and it's weighty. And we get to command and teach the Bible through song and through our prayers and through public readings each week. So as we prepare to lead our worship ministry in God's people, we would do well to remember that the Word of God is a lot of things. We've talked about one. That it's this living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit. It's also breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Isaiah 40 says it reveals the glory of the Lord it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119. It's soul, uh, let's see, it keeps us from sinning, Psalm 119:11. 11. Hide, may I hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, it says. It's at work in believers, 1 Thessalonians. It's the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6. It makes one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3. <laughs> we forget this. I forget it. We read the word in, in the public gathering. And people get saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing responsibility and joy that we get to be a part of. It makes the man of God complete, equipped for every good work, and it stands forever. And all of this and more is available to us right here. And so, are we reading it? Are we singing it each week? We do what we do to exalt the triune God and to see by the power of the Holy Spirit the full conscience and active participation and maturation of the people at, insert your church name, in spirit and in truth, Colossians 2 says. So you have this great opportunity to struggle for others. You have this great opportunity to teach this and to put it before your people in hope that their hearts would be encouraged and that they would, quote, reach all the riches of fullness of understanding, assurance, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. They must see Jesus. That's the opportunity that we have each week, to see Jesus. In Acts uh, 8, Philip Here's the Ethiopian eunuch reading scripture, and he knows Philip knows the Bible so well that he knows that he's reading from Isaiah um, but the he walks up to him and he says, "Do you understand what you're reading you know and he says, "Well, how can I unless someone guides me right so Philip uh, begins to explain um, the passage of scripture that he's reading and uh and it says that um it says that uh, so Philip is invited to sit with him, explain the scriptures to him, and he ultimately baptized him. So he he went, he baptized him and then he went on his way rejoicing. Right. And, and that's the, this is the passage that I feel like um, really uh, wraps up uh, the meaning of this whole conference. Doxology and theology. So the Ethiopians uh, theology, it propelled. His doxology. He read the scriptures. He was sitting, he was sitting enthroned. He was, uh, he was a, a prince, a helper. Uh, uh, he was a helper to the prince. He was, he was really high status. Okay? And he's sitting in this chariot and he's reading this, but he was unmoved. He didn't know what he was reading. He went to pray. He went to read the scriptures, which was good, but he had no understanding of it. There was no theological framework for what he was reading. Until Philip explained it to him and then he, went, he got baptized and went on his way rejoicing, it says. And so hear this. The church cannot afford to settle for worship leaders who are capable, emotive musicians, but are incompetent theologians. Let me say it again. The church cannot afford to settle for worship leaders who are capable, emotive musicians, but are incompetent theologians. Conversely, This is doxology and theology. The church cannot afford to settle for worship leaders who are competent theologians, but incapable, unemotional musicians and worshipers. We also can't afford that. So we want to be healthy, godly leaders, and... uh, first things first it starts with our identity and it moves down the list for me Um, so I would encourage you to to think on the Lord today to study his word to find out who he says that you are to find out who you think you are and the lies that you're telling yourself I'd encourage you to sharpen the axe stay in the word daily I'd encourage you to confess your sins to those that you trust in your life. For ministers, people at a church, sometimes it can feel really lonely. Amen? Anybody else? It can feel lonely. The expectation is we're to be perfect. There's only one that's perfect. And so we must face-to-face with brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister, things that are deep things that affect us deeply, things that are pulling us away from the Lord. We must stay tethered to the text and we must stay tethered in community. We're not gonna be able to do this without it, right? All right, well, let me, let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you for this opportunity that we've been given. I thank you that you've made us into your image, God. I thank you that you hold us and have us, that you see us, that you know us, God, and that we can know you. I pray for these men and women in this room because um, outside of this culture that we put ourselves here in in this conference, the world is screaming at us to go big and to go fast and to be famous and to get a lot of money And I just pray, God, that we would not be professionals, as John Piper has said. Humble us under your mighty hand, as your word says. Let us rise not as professionals, but as witnesses and partakers of the sufferings of Christ. One of our temptations, God, as Zach Eswine has said, is to forget that most of the things that matter in life require us to have the capacity to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. So God, our friendships, our marriage, dealing with sickness, learning how to forgive others, remind us that most things that truly matter in life, they don't happen with big, fast, and famous attention. Help us to understand words like waiting, patience, contentedness, the ability to persevere. Help us to not want to know everything, fix everything, and be everywhere at once. There is one who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Remind us that you care for us today. Help us to rejoice Help us to slow down. Help us to consider the calling that you've called us to. Help us to remember that you have made us and that we are yours and we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.